Hi there, and welcome to Product Storyteller. My name is Stuart Noyce, and this is my personal podcast, where I dive into stories of and about product innovation, the crucially important process that satisfies unmet need with unique value. From the origins of the internet to the future of crypto platforms, from Haas MBA classmates to Burning Man makers, I cover the ground where entrepreneurs and business leaders create new value with a wisdom that ensures our shared future. Product Storyteller explores the durable edge of free market capitalism, where people practice restraint and live in community with one another. If you love it, give it a great review and subscribe on iTunes or elsewhere to catch every interview that's coming. For the past 18 months, I have been exploring issues of privacy, transparency, and trust on the internet. At first, I was attracted to the blockchain buzz. It seemed like distributed computing had given way to decentralized computing, and the promise of an open internet would continue, built from the bottom up. But then the hype bubble deflated with an immediacy reminiscent of the dot-com bust in 2000. The buzz was gone, but a quiet hum was still left. The core underlying dissatisfaction with big tech was still evident. Why should a few big companies control not just our data, but our lives and the way we interact with others in society? I was now seeing those same crypto advocates become much more focused on building applications that would solve the problem. Not interested in regulation, they were going to work to build systems that could replace what was there. It's in that context that I produced and moderated a panel on storytelling in disruptive innovation at Node Worldwide, 1011 Kearney Street in San Francisco on June 11, 2019. The idea was to find four people with very different perspectives on disruptive innovation who would each bring their personal experience to the conversation. Those people were John Michael Scott, Sibel Zuvolo-Siegel, Byron Bland, and Erica Blair. I introduced the event and framed the conversation around Facebook and the opening it has left for disruptors. Each person on the panel introduces him or herself, and then the questions begin. Let's listen now. Anyone remember what happened just a couple of weeks ago, May 24th? Fake doctored videos of Nancy Pelosi. What did Facebook do? Kept them online. Yeah, well, they de-emphasized the algorithm, right? So the algorithm doesn't show it, I guess. But, but the point was they didn't, they assumed that, that things that were posted could be fake, right? Which has led to, again, their brand being tainted and it's no longer Facebook. It looks more like Fakebook. So Nancy Pelosi has, uh, uh, in this response, led to a, a, res a response of House legislators to investigate both Facebook and Google for antitrust. This is not where you want to be as an innovator. Uh, and what it leads to is an opportunity for disruptive innovation, right? So if, uh, as anybody familiar with uh, Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen? How many people? Show of hands. Okay, so there's a few disruptive innovators in the audience. This is great. Um, this is the classic uh, approach to it, and we have um, those who, uh, of us who did business school or whatever, or read a lot of the business books back about 10 to 15 years ago, would have known that Clayton was looking at um, the works of, uh, his actual initial research was done in the disk drive industry, so he was looking at um, drives going from 5 to 3.5 to 2.8, so different size of platters. And what was going on is that the customer requirements would be relatively constant and the sustaining technology would be getting better and better and better. But then disruptors would come in and they would have to come in where there were unmet customer requirements. This is the key. So disruptors come in where there's unmet customer requirements. And uh, where do we see those happening today? Um, well, excuse me. 
And where we see them happening today is in places like trust and transparency and privacy. Right? These are issues that people bring up and say, I'd like my data not to be shared with everyone. I'd like for the ads that sh I would like maybe not to have ads. Right? So there, there, there is now uh, in this second wave, which is largely driven by blockchain and crypto, interest in new unmet requirements that allow for disruptive innovation. Many of the people I know here at Node, uh, which is Node Worldwide here at 1011 Kearney, um, are interested and motivated to provide for to, uh, and address those requirements. Okay, well, here's the panel. My name is Stuart Noyce. I'm the moderator. Uh, I have a, a private practice, True North Consulting, and I do strategic marketing services. Um, my work is done with innovators, and um, I have a panel with me. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Um, they're, all of these are really good friends of mine, and uh, I think they're pretty special. So uh, let's uh, have them introduce themselves. Hello, my name is John Michael Scott. I have been uh, had the pleasure to uh, get to know Stuart over the past few months, as well as uh, some of the other members of the panel. Um, my background is um, best described as being a born, you know, explorer. Uh, I think that tends to lead to trying to disrupt things. You explore a lot, you look around, and you're like, wow, I don't really like the way that is. And so you try to do something about it. So I'm a founder. I also work with a lot of founders, and I also work with a lot of big companies trying to get the founder mindset to manifest in big companies. That's kind of a short brief. Hi, everyone. I'm Sibel Zufolo-Siegel. Thank you, Stuart, for inviting me. John Michael Scott. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor of writing at the Academy of Art University. Uh, let's see here. I teach courses in creativity, autobiography, uh, short-form writing. I was at City College, different you know, Olivet University. Um, and I teach the writing process. And I have a background in performing arts. I was a dancer growing up. I studied theater. Uh, happy to be here. Looking forward to, to talking about innovation. Uh, I'm Byron Bland, and you're probably all too young, but do you remember a Monty Python skit where he would come on and somebody say, and now some, for something completely different? Mm -hmm. And and then they'd go on and do the same thing. Okay. And, but they went through several times of just, now, and now for something completely different. Well, now for something completely different. I'm, uh, I, I, my involvement in this is that I, I worked 35 years in Northern Ireland and 20, 30 years in Jerusalem working on peace building. And so I come from some background of, of not how do you get in the room, but how do you get out of the room without killing somebody. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm bringing that sort of experience to this, and we'll see how it goes. Now for something completely different. <laughs> Thanks. Um, my name is Erica Blair. Uh, I grew up in Palo Alto with a software engineer father, and so I kind of grew up surrounded by tech and then decided to um, completely leave all that behind and travel the world and go understand the rest of the world. And so at this point, I kind of see myself as a translator between the world of tech and the humans that we're trying to reach with the technology that we're building. And so the work I do is centered around designing brand messaging that helps bridge that gap between um, people who don't actually care how things work and just want to understand why they're gonna, their lives are going to get better um, and the people who are creating the products every single day that um, need to have some dialogue with the rest of the world to be able to make sure that what they're building is actually relevant. So thank you for having me. So um, we're going to start off with the first question, which is, um, why do we innovate? 
And what's the point of all this innovation? So um, I'm going to actually, we're going to start with John Michael because he's looking at it from the enterprise perspective. And I'm really curious about uh, that particular side of, of innovation. Sure. Thank you, Stuart. So, you know, um, as Stuart mentioned, I, I've spent, even though I just talked about being a founder and all that, I spent an extraordinary amount of time uh, being inside the walls of different enterprise companies all across the United States and a couple other places. And, <laughs> and one of the things that um, you see a lot is that big enterprise companies are either living in fear of what's going to come next or they're trying to figure out how to make what's going to come next. So there's some fun examples of this. I'll just give you just a couple teensy, really small ones. Um, so one is IBM. So IBM is a really interesting company. People do not pay attention to this company anywhere near enough. But one of the things you can rely on over the past like 100 years is that IBM has continually reinvented itself. It's gone from you know little machines that read punch cards to figure out how we're doing in our census in the United States to creating a bunch of calculators to creating a bunch of computers to deciding to become the world's biggest outsourcer to now recently deciding not to be the world's biggest outsourcer, but probably the world's big, biggest outsourcer of frontier technology. So, um, you know, that's pretty interesting. And why do they do it? Because they've already faced significant disruption many times in their corporate history. And so they're no longer waiting for the disruptors to show up. They're trying to figure out how to cannibalize and disrupt themselves. So literally, if you were to look up the news right now, they went from being, you know, uh, I think close to 375,000 or more people just worrying about being outsourcers around the world to deciding that you know they should get rid of a lot of people. So that's interesting. And then the, the other um, interesting example would be uh, there was a slide I saw about four months ago that Walmart um, presented. And Walmart is cur currently one of the top retailers in the world. The slide that they presented was a comparison of who the top retailers were 13 years before and who are the top retailers today. And what was seminal on the slide was that of the people in the top 10 or top 12 13 years ago, none of them were on Walmart's contemporary slide. So Walmart, on the other hand, is much more interested in just trying to you know, hold the ground, figure out how not to be disrupted. And Jeff Bezos himself, famous disruptor, has said in no uncertain terms, my biggest goal is to push back on the disruption as long as I can. And that's really how he sees the world. So those are just a couple thoughts from across enterprise. So anyone else, anyone else want to bring up? Yeah, go ahead. I think it's also, you know, why do we innovate? To create something new and fresh in education, I'm thinking. Um, to really to connect with students. And for me, it's, um, you know, I'm able to use my theater training to breathe life into characters so we can really get to know their story and we can understand characters, not just reading it, but really embodying, understanding characters as they're real, living, breathing human beings in books we read, like such as The Odyssey or Hamlet or Othello, Romeo and Juliet. 
Uh, we innovate in so many ways um, to connect with students, to, to provide a new form of learning. There's you know, visual learning, auditory. Um, one of the assignments I like to give is asking students to go to a local museum, walk around, and take five different pictures of works of art and write about each work of art and the pathos, ethos, and logos in each work of art. What is the emotion coming from that we see from the art? What is the um, experience of the artist? Uh, what is the, is, is there logic? Um, different ways of connecting and communicating and, and reaching, reaching students you know, in terms of uh, teaching and education. Um, just keeping fresh with what, what, what my students are, how they're learning, incorporating video, um, you know, uh, incorporating different, keeping it fresh, always saying I'm, I'm open to learning new strategies and, um, you know, that's I think with collaboration as well. Um, a, an assignment that I give, it's called the multi-genre assignment. It's Tom Romano, uh, a professor, talked about uh, exploring one theme, one genre through one work of art. My students are majoring in everything from architecture, acting, graphic design, fashion, and so they will share a work of art with the class that they're comfortable with in their comfort zone. And then I'll ask them, oh, I'd like you to share two works of art outside of your comfort zone. Um, so it's kind of, you know, forces them to think on their feet, uh, stretches, you know, they work outside their comfort zone to produce, let's say, self-portrait, watercolor, poetry, something different within the arts. And it mixes it up. I like that. It's the whole multi-genre collaborative approach, which challenges them. And that that's innovation to me. So I like, I like that. So that's one of the Erica? I think of innovation as, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Better? Okay. I think of um, innovation as being innately tied to optimism in the sense of you can't make uh, something different, like you can't make a better world unless you believe that a better world is possible. And so to me, that is the kind of foundation upon which innovation lies is do we conceive of a world that could be better than what we have today? And how can we paint a vision of what that world looks like so we can inspire people to change their behavior even when they have some entrenched um, sort of modes that are hard to break? Um, what can we do to inspire them to actually want to do things differently because they feel like there's a tangible um, vision of what they're moving toward? Um, and for me, that's what got me interested in storytelling, not necessarily for any other reason, but just because it's um, an effective method to paint that picture and motivate people to feel inspired that there is a better world that we could be moving toward. Byron, did you want to add something? Yeah, I want to step down off of this. I'm having a hard time negotiating this chair. <laughs> so I'll step back on in a few minutes, but, uh, but it's getting me turns kind of sideways. I, I, I think that innovation is, is not simply doing something new in, in a situation. It's doing something, maybe something old that you do, but it breaks the situation open so that new things begin to happen. You see things in a different way, different things comes together. And as I began to think about it, one story kept coming back to me time and time again. So I, so I have a good uh, friend, a Palestinian, uh, named Waleed Salam. And Waleed does, does amazing work in democracy, civil society, he really is an innovative person in, in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank and known for that kind of stuff. So we, you know, we invite him to Stanford, put him in front of a group like you and say, talk, 
you know, and, and he starts talking. And, and we have a, a, a big audience. I mean, it's a big, and, and most of them are kind of liberal Jewish professors. If you, not all of them, 60% are out there. And they're kind of listening to him and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard some of that before. And I don't know whether he'll do it or not or how sincere he is about it. And this kind of got this kind of openness but skeptical attitude about it. And finally, a, a friend of mine was trying to be open and friendly to him. He, he was also a, a, a person who was Jewish in background. And he stood up and he said, you know, Waleed, don't you think that we in this country, particularly Jews like myself, just make entirely too much of the Holocaust? Why don't we give enough of the, why don't we talk about the Nakba? You know, the, the catastrophe, that that's what it's called for, for Palestinians. And, and so Waleed, he began to walk toward him, you know? He walked up to the step and he looked at him and says, are you crazy? So the Holocaust was the defining event of the 20th century. The Nakba is a disaster. It's terrible. But it's what happens all the time with people. It's one thing that has happened many times. Don't put them in the same paragraph. Now, when he said that, the air went out of the room. Because nobody there thought they would ever hear a Palestinian say that. And so they said something that they never expected that person to say. Innovation happened then because they understood that in a way that they never understood that before and they listened to him in a way that they never listened to him before because he opened up avenues of connection and understanding they didn't expect to happen. And so that's what I think innovation is. Okay. Yeah, we're on. Can you get them used to it? I'm curious what your answer is. All right, so so I'll give you my answer. Thank you, Erica. Um, so for me, innovation is creativity that adds value. Uh, I look at things very much from a value-add perspective. I'm bringing products to market. Uh, the point that all of my panelists have made is that innovation is a place where there's some inspiration. And that creativity, for me, is, is what you expressed. Um, the part where it adds value is where you're doing something that's useful in the world. And, and it's really, um, in the case of Walid, uh, I think he did something pretty useful in that moment, didn't he? So it's, that's the kind of thing. So even though, what, what I, one of the things we wanted to do tonight was to give you some inspiration uh, because we come at this so much from a tech perspective. I spent so much of my time just thinking about products and, and the disruptors that I really wanted to expand our minds as well as I was expanding my own. So thank you very much for the first question. Now, I wonder if we're going to be here for a while. How much time does, do all of you have? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. OK. <laughs> um, let's, well, let's go right to the next one, because where do you think innovation is happening right now? Anyone want to pick that up right away? Erica, come on. You're in the middle of this. <laughs> I know you're in the middle of this one. Uh, I mean, that's, and by there's this, a lot I'm, to map out there. Um, I guess, I, I suppose the reason why you're pointing at me is because of the work I've done in the blockchain industry. Um, to me, the reason why I got into the blockchain industry was because I was seeing that there was an opportunity for old ideas to have new light and based on what is now 
um, we're now the capacity we have through technology. And so the idea of, hey, how do we take a bunch of people and distribute the power so that we can have um, more resilient decision making and better systems of, of, of uh, like reducing points of failure and things like that. Those are all old ideas, but something that we didn't necessarily have tools to administer um, without centralized bodies before. And so when I think about the, the way that innovation's happening, it's almost like a spiral of just revisiting similar things with new tools and with by building onto what we've already got. Um, and so what inspires me about the world that we're heading into and why I come back to the idea of optimism is that I think if we're really trying to pinpoint, okay, how do we achieve something better than what we have today, then it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel every single time. There's so, like every fundamental question of humanity has been tossed and turned a hundred million times over. What we're now developing is essentially, at least in this realm, the computing capacity to change the way that we answer those questions. Um, and so I'm excited to explore what are new answers to old questions even more than just new questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. There, there's a freshness to it mm -hmm. uh, and an optimism to the blockchain crypto space. Um, I'm actually, so uh, as a side note, uh, I do a podcast with John Michael called Blocks Nexus. <coughs> And we have been emphasizing and focusing in on uh, people who are working on blockchain applications. So perhaps John Michael has something to say about that. Many things to say. But um, I just wanted to riff a little bit on uh, specifically what Eric was talking about. I mean, one of the things I took away from what she was talking about, about this future of sort of decentralizing away from having a necessary point of authority to solve all problems. I think that there are good things about necessary points of authority for some things, but I also think it's not always the requirement. But what I took away from that is that there is the concept of community and a lot of what causes centralizing forces is managing communities. So we go back in time, you find all, all kinds of examples like that, tribes, uh, Jamestown, the United States, whatever, uh, go across the world, there are, are similar types of communities. And every time you put a community together, you end up in this position where you have to somehow enforce a set of standards that everybody in the community has agreed to. And this is what tends to create these kinds of interesting centralizing authorities. But what I think is really interesting about a blockchain approach in particular is that um, you have the ability to agree as a community to what the rules are, and then you turn into an opt automatic contract. So if you want to be a part of this community, you have to agree to the contract. Um, this has some really interesting effects. One of the interesting effects is that uh, you start to be able to see how people comport themselves in the community. You start to see healthier communities developing partly because everybody can see how everybody fits. Um, and that, you know, that's just sort of like leading to the overall point here, which is that I think that these new communities rely very heavily on reputation economics, not just on uh, decentralized authorities or you know contracts between each other, but the idea of a reputation economy, where reputation and knowing what to expect of each other forms a strong basis for knowing how to interact and knowing that the community is what I thought it was. I think reputation economics, that's, that's probably the most important thing that 
um, that I see in, in terms of driving these things forward. And it's not purely a technology question. Once you unleash the genie of reputation economics, it starts to permeate. It's not just on a blockchain, it finds its way into everything. It's worth noting too that reputation economics is also just how the world has always worked in small bands and tribes forever. And what's happened is we've just moved to a scale where we now don't have the tools to necessarily suss out people's reputations without um, some sort of layer of communication between the people who um, are kind of judging one another. And so what I'm seeing is like, as I said, like a very old system of how humans interact moving into a new paradigm where we're able to do it at different types of scale based on the technology that we have. When you were saying reputation, I was thinking, um, I was showing my students a video by Patti Smith, and she's saying, keep your, keep your name clean, keep your reputation clean. And so it just makes me think of Patti Smith. Um, I think there's innovation in literature and the arts. Uh, for me, I, it's, you know, it's very interesting. I, I really enjoy hearing, you know, learning about blockchain. Um, for me, you know, um, in writing, you know, if someone wants to be a writer, oh, you know, we, we don't want to, we don't have to wait for our work to get published necessarily. We can publish our own work, self-publishing. Um, we can make things happen for ourselves, you know. Um, you know, I love, I love writing. I love uh, performing arts. So I said, you know, let me have, I'm going to put a show together. I'm going to create a show. Um, because I have passion for, for writing and literature and poetry, and I have a background as a dancer, actress, and I, I love you know I love teaching. So I created a show with my husband. It's called Word Performances, and so we have local uh, emerging and established you know novelists, writers, musicians, artists get up on stage for seven minutes and perform. And we've had a show for a couple of years now. So kind of making things happen on our own. Where is innovation? It's in the arts. It's redefining what is performance. Redefining you know what is you know, I want to be a writer, I want to be a performer, redefining that, making things happen for ourselves, innovations in the arts constantly, you know, um, creating films, creating, you know, self-publishing, writing on medium, um, you know, redefining performance, redefining, you know, what's going on on stage, right? You know, it's like, things like that. Yeah, one of the things I'm taking away from, from that, um, Sabelle, is that your word performances are pretty innovative. I mean, isn't we, it like ballet so and rap well, together? We do some, sure, yeah. We do rap, we do ballet. It's Thank you, Stuart. Um, it's, a, it's really it's, unusual. You know, we have, <laughs> you I know, saw a violinist, writer, a cello. Yeah, exactly. I have a right. hodgepodge. I do. That's why I like the collaboration. So I do a one. I kind of do talk about the story of ballet and growing up in the ballet world. And I have my, my friend plays violin, and I incorporate dance and acting. And so it's like, is this like, is it writing? Is it acting? What's going, you know, so it's like everything all at once. It's like, that's, I think that's innovation, kind of a mashup of the arts together. And so I, I wanted yeah, to, thanks. I wanted to oh, um, share with you that uh, over many years, I, I've worked on different projects. Uh, from a marketing perspective, I always felt like when there was something really unique and new coming out, um, we had complete um, freedom to do whatever was in the moment necessary to reach the audience. And so we would do very different kinds of, of marketing programs um, that might take advantage of, you know, ballet and rap or jugglers uh, on unicycles, 20 feet high, things like that. So and we would do different things. Um, Byron, do you have anything you want to add before yeah, we move on? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I don't think that, I think innovation is a lot like trust and that it's not a general term. It's a specific term. So I, I trust individual people about in specific things. I don't trust in general. And, and so I think that innovation is similar to that in that I am innovated about particular things in particular ways about it. 
And so when I was trying to, since I knew you were going to ask me what the innovation is happening, I tried to think about it. And that was a little bit hard for me to do until I personalized it and said, what have I been involved in that I thought was particularly innovative? And there is one. There, there is so that when I did a lot of work on how, on, on basically how does grassroots dialogue lead to political and social uh, reconciliation in Northern Ireland. And, the, and I had, I was associate director of a research center that looked at this stuff. And I had partners that I knew were good friends with who were actually at the front lines participating in these dialogues uh, where, where there was real violence happening and you could get killed. And, and, and so how did we link up to try to figure out how to talk with one another? And, and we came up with the idea that if researchers knew everything the practitioners knew, what would they think was particularly interesting? And if practitioners knew everything that researchers knew, what would they think was particularly interesting? And so our sense of innovation evolved from that interface. So it was a particular kind of way that again opened up a kind of conversation that we couldn't have if what we were doing was talking as experts down to <coughs> practitioners or, to, or as practitioners telling experts they have no idea what the hell they're doing. And so I, I thought that that's, that's a kind of interesting way to look at how you can bring the people together but then break open the expectations and frameworks in which we engage with each other. What I'm hearing you say is that diversity is at the core of innovation because if you have all people who have one perspective it's really hard to create innovation uh -huh. versus when you're smashing people with very different perspectives together that's when new ideas get formed. Yeah, that no, if, it's, yeah, if it's not diverse I can talk to myself in my own <laughs> room. Diversity, that extends, I, I like that you said that um, because diversity extends to the classroom, having everyone represented, you know, uh, students of you know, color, LGBT, disabled, veteran, women, having everyone represented, and the, the curriculum as well, the course content also is representative of diversity, so it's interesting, yeah, it's great. What's really cool about this last part is that everybody basically agreed on one form or, in one form or another that um, bringing together people with diverse opinions is always an interesting thing to do. And so I just wanted to put out there this idea of like us all collectively paying attention to intersectional spaces. We're sitting actually in an intersectional space where a lot of different interesting people can come together. I mean that physically in the space that we're sitting in. I also mean the space of San Francisco. There are many places like this in the world. But it is actually, I agree completely, a critical part of trying to create uh, new innovations to actually get that diversity coming together, ideas that don't have any meaningful reason to be in the room with each other uh, that then result in you know, realizations between different groups. Let, let, let me dissent just, just a bit, just a little okay. bit on that to raise a caution about it. So, so that a lot of times who do, people who do the work that I kind of do, you say, you get together, let's create greater understanding. <laughs> and when we create greater understanding, that's obviously going to lead to greater engagement and trust and all that. Not necessarily so. So that, that unless you think and in our terms there's a shared future, that I'm giving you a future, that not one that you wanted, but I'm offering one in which you could live, you can, you could, you could bear it. You could get along with it. You wouldn't use violence to overturn it. And unless I'm hearing that from you, conversation's only going to prove greater that that isn't a possibility. And so when you're doing this kind of engagement about stuff, it has to be within a particular context. Or what you really are proving to people 
is that they, I don't, I cannot have a future with, it's even less so than I originally thought. And I think that's important that we give some thought to in what context does that diversity come together and what are the kind of structures that are needed in that diversity in order to make it a productive conversation. That's not really disagreeing with you. No, I get but, but your I point. Want to, but I want to say it anyway. I think, yeah, it's, totally I, think it's, I think you're bringing it right back yeah. to storytelling, yeah. which is what brought us here today in the sense of like, if you're not able to get together and to talk about the story of what a shared future might look like, then you could be telling completely separate stories. And those two stories could actually be the dividing factor versus the unifying one. Trust and storytelling to really trust someone, you know, it's like you, they want, they tell their story. They tell you, and you tend to, we have more of a, a connection. If they tell their story, they open up to you, you open up to them. There is trust that kind of, Okay, so trust. they're racing ahead. So I'm gonna rein them back in for just a bit. But we are getting into the, really into the next question for the panel. And I wanted to, um, to take it back to the intro that we just did. We just looked at the story of Facebook, right? Or at least a summary of the story of Facebook. And here, there was a disruptive innovation, right? There was an opportunity when somebody stepped into the place where communities, right? Communities were, we, we had a place we went to high school, we had a place we went to college, and those people said, well, I'd like to keep in touch with those friends. And so they, they posted themselves on Facebook, they kept, you know, they put new information about themselves on Facebook, they friended, they got other people to join, and pretty soon you had to be there, right? And they told a story, Facebook told a story that all of your friends would be on Facebook and you needed to be there. Uh, I told a story back about 30 years ago that we all, you all need to be on the internet. Um, you need to have a certain piece of software in your computer, TCP IP, and a, and a layer above that, or you were going to be left behind. And every single one of those um, uh, companies that had to respond to that, we're saying, my customer says that you're going to connect to every computer, and so I want TCP IP in your computer. Let me tell you that I had people walking into the room when I threw a party like this, and they said, I don't want to be here, but I have to be here. Okay, so now we're at the point where we can tell a powerful story like that, right? We're good. Particularly the people on this panel are good at telling those stories. But what happens when we go a little bit too far and we've told a story that pushes some buttons and there isn't a shared future, as Byron talked about? So does anyone want to jump in and, and maybe pick on some situations where that happened and, and what you think they could have done right? Oh, 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 so I'm in, and Amanda's in, involved in this a bit as well. So uh, and Anda, why don't you stand up? This is Ananda Barclay. She's a friend of the program. She's my pastor. So... Um, so I was involved in a project that had to do with clinical psychologists and particularly their relationship to, to a particular community, of African-American community. And, and they were talking about how can we build links and understanding and working relationships and all that kind of stuff. Now the clinical psychologists looked at the, at the situation of the African-American community and they said, this is a situation of lack of trust. There's insufficient trust here. And so what we need to do, since I know I'm a trustworthy person, <laughs> I, they need to get to know me. And when they get to know me, they'll know how trustworthy I am and we will move forward in this. Now, the African-American community looked at the clinical psychologist and had distrust. 
And the difference is one is I don't have sufficient trust in knowing you to move forward. The other is I have an active expectation that bad's going to come from this. And so everything that the clinical psychologist said to this community didn't affect anything at all because it had addressed lack of such storytelling where the real one that needed to happen was how do I tell a story that dispels distrust, that does something different about that. And I think that that's a critical difference when you're beginning the storytelling process. What am I dealing with? What am I trying to engage in? Much of the work that we did in Northern Ireland and in and around Jerusalem was not lack of trust. They, they, they knew each other really well, and they had very good reasons uh, why they distrusted them. And you aren't going to convince them otherwise about that, because if you were in there, you would have had that distrust as well. But you had to begin to tell stories that engaged one another in ways that are focused on the distrust, the active expectation of bad that they had from someone else. And I think that distinction is one that we don't often make, but one we really should spend time thinking about what the context is. I, 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 one thing that strikes me that we're here to talk about storytelling, um, and I think by using that word telling, we often think of it as a unidirectional thing versus when we're actually trying to figure out which story we should be using uh, for the, to generate whatever effect we're seeking. Oftentimes, at least in my experience, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, it's actually the questions that you ask that unlock what kind of uh, stories you might want to be able to tell oh, to create the bridge. And, and what I find is that generally, if ever there's a challenging situation between people, you can usually map it to the amount of questions being asked. And when there's very low questions, then it becomes a tit-for-tat downward spiral versus when there's questions, then it's an engagement of, I actually care. No, uh, I 100% agree, mm -hmm. and the long answer would take me about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did a video. Another time. It was three hours. It was six hours, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, just, just briefly, the, the sum of my work over those 40 years is that it's not agreements that produce peaceful relationships, but peaceful relationships make agreements possible. And so the question becomes, is your thing, how do you shape those relationships that would allow them to just simply muddle through? With this, that's that that's good enough for me. Muddling through the and and those take shape around four questions. And I and I don't want to get too much. One of them you heard about the shared future earlier, but but I then I don't want to because we wouldn't finish. But but there it does make a critical difference as to how you shape those stories around what questions. If anybody does want to learn more about the questions, um, I, I wasn't joking. We did um, do a video. Um, and Ananda and I um, spent some time uh, also doing a blog, uh, excuse me, a podcast with Byron. So there is information uh, available for that. We can share that with you. Um, that's the Applied Wisdom uh, podcast, Applied Wisdom. Yeah, so, um, you know, my, my whole take on uh, approaching negotiation comes from a wildly different world than uh, Byron's. I don't have to negotiate peace in countries, and I... Fortunately for me, and I applaud everyone who tries, mm -hmm. I don't have to negotiate people not killing each other. Thank goodness. I'm not sure I could personally handle it. Um, so I applaud everyone who can. Um, I spend an inordinate amount of time negotiating between uh, people's professional goals. And I mean that inside of a startup with two founders who have different goals for each other. I mean that in 
a large company where you have a group of people with very different stakeholder goals and trying to figure out how to get them to come together. And I would totally agree with everything that was just said. It's as applicable in every aspect of how we interact as human beings together. I definitely believe that if you're not asking questions, you're already on the wrong side of the table. You're not on the shared side of the table. You're just on the other side of the table. And I talk about this with uh, people that I work with about, you know, creating oppositional situations as opposed to creating shared situations. I don't necessarily, I didn't come to the same place for the same reasons, but I, I just think that, you know, what you just heard here uh, was so critical, the asking questions, but also walking into the room, regardless of what your predilections are, and just suspending disbelief for a second and saying, okay, well, I don't know if we agree, but at least I'm going to see if we can muddle through. And I think that that's a really important point to be able to take away from you know, what we're talking about here. It makes me think of when you talked about um, you know negotiating and and then we were talking about trust earlier. I mean, trust you know has to be earned. I think no matter what, it has to be earned. You know, for for me as a teacher, as an instructor, is through feedback, through students knowing that I'm there for them, they're being encouraged, they're in a safe, comfortable setting. They can share, and they're you know we, we listen to every point of view. But I think it's for me, it's feedback. It's um, just knowing that there there's a community. Um, I think we, we were talking about trust earlier, you know, and that has to be. Um, I do connect that with storytelling, you know, kind of how when we really get to know each other. And I know it's different. I think it's in the classroom, shared values, and we really get to know each other's story and vulnerabilities. And then there is a certain connection. There is a level of trust. I think sometimes there's a lot of resistance to change. What is the the problem? You know, the resistance to innovation. There's not wanting to change, not resistance to change. Oh, this has been working for a long time, so why change it? But you know, it's my husband taught me a lot about. You know, he's a UX designer, you know, teacher with an arts background, and he, he's taught me a lot about technology and um, re, you know redefining not only performance writing but also the use of technology in the classroom is so helpful. Um, and that's definitely helped my teaching. And just um, the resistance to change. Oh, you know, tried and true. This is, you know, no, we need to, everything always needs to be kind of, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's elastic, it's buoyant. It's always breathing and moving and changing. Um, but it, it's interesting. I, I enjoy hearing what Byron has to say, everyone, um, Erica, I think just uh, for me, I was thinking about you know shared values that would there would be something there, but it has to be a common goal. I was thinking that way, so I, I enjoy hearing. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One, one distinction that, and so we take this as a distinction. You need to know what, I, what I'm going to say, which is that the difference, but there is a difference between a vision of a shared future and a shared vision of the future. Shared vision of the future implies agreement. Vision of the share push doesn't imply agreement. It's mean when I hear Stuart talk, there's a future he give in his goals and dreams and aspirations that I could live with, even though I wouldn't want that future, and vice versa about that. So that sets up a domain about this. If you were if you were a group that you had come to us from some conflict place, one of the first questions we would ask you is, so what would happen to you if the other side got what you really what they really wanted? And you might say to me, who's the other side? I said, you know who the other side is. I want to know, what do you think would happen to you if they got what they really wanted? Because if that's bad, then you're in trouble. 
and if if and why should I trust you to pursue what you don't want, really want? I should trust you to pursue what you want. And so many people have told us that we need trust in order to build a shared future. No, no, you need a shared future in order to build trust. Because unless I can say, you, if you got what you really wanted, which is what you're going to really try to do, I could live with that. And if that's the case, I can trust you. And I, and I think that that kind of sense of putting it, I mean, there's a part in which your negotiations from business, and in parts around, if, if you got in this deal what you really wanted, where would I be? Right. Where would I be in that? And you have to have a good, a good answer for that. Yeah, I mean, I, ideally, it, it, for me, and it's related to that, uh, and you could ask at least, probably at least 10 people in this room who know me, I'm very determined in my own pursuit of win-win conditions. So I, I, I may not get exactly what I wish for, but what I want to do for sure is to be in a position where both of us got something we wanted. Um, it, to me, that's, mm -hmm. at least for my goals, that's really important. Which for, which, for, what, which for me, like the long, more that I start to put myself in long-term thinking, the more I am able to access that. Because when I start to look at the person across from me and say, we have 50 more years where we have to build a connection and let it sustain because we live in the same place, we're not going away, it changes the entire way that I perceive whether or not it's worth finding a, an outcome that works for both of us. Um, as soon as I'm just thinking very narrow-minded and focusing only on a specific target and just a very short time frame, I'm much less inclined to say, all right, let's build a vision of a shared future. I want to make sure I get that one right. I really like that distinction. Yeah. That was beautiful. Okay, we are uh, we're getting towards the end. Um, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to go to the audience for questions. So, anybody thinking of things right now? Good, good. All right. So the last question we're going to cover is is really about how you go about telling stories. I mean, we have some experts here who tell stories pretty much every day. So maybe we could get a little, and can Erica, can we start with, sure. with you? Yeah. Um, so I write a lot of copy. And so I have to think about this in a very strategic way. What comes first? What comes second? What comes third? Um, what I've noticed is that people are generally always much more cognizant of their pain than they are of what pleasure they'd like to have. And so when you can speak to somebody's pain and engage them with the feeling that you understand what they're going through on the negative level, then you can start to build the trust that whatever solution you might be offering lends them some sort of relief from that pain. Um, what I see a lot of people doing, especially when they're um, trying to tell stories about some disruptive technology, and I advocate for this in a way, is that there is this beautiful future that we're moving toward. Right? But before you can get people to really get their um, claws into that, they have to feel like, okay, this is going to take away some pain for me. Um, and so uh, being able to understand what is the experience that someone's going through, what is the pain that they're feeling, how can you write copy or speak words or connect with them on that level is the technique at least that I use to draw them into, oh, that's what you're going through? All right, come here. I got something to show you. Yeah, excellent. I, I completely concur with you on that one, Erica. That in, a, in this case of we just looked at Facebook at the very beginning, right? Um, people know their pain, right? As particularly in this community, they know their pain with Facebook. And we talk about trust and transparency and privacy. 
and they get it immediately. And if you ask, actually, if you ask a few people around here, they'll tell you that their startup is going to be the one that is the disruptive innovator of Facebook. So I had several people actually remind me of that already. So we know where the pain is. Um, Sibel, do you want to yeah, share something? Um, let's see. So I was thinking, you know, because I teach in my class, um, well, we, in kind of a business sense, we teach um, elevator pitch. And, you know, this is kind of the business interview. What would you say if, if someone only had a minute, you know, the doors are closing, what can you tell them? But knowing who the, your audience is, that's important, knowing who you're speaking to. So I was thinking kind of business. And then I was also thinking the arts, you know, as a, you know, artist, writer, uh, future. I was thinking, um, what is the happiest time of your life? The absolute happiest, most joyous time of your life, most exciting, and then putting that into one sentence, or just really crafting that, knowing how to get to the core of your your story is like the, the most joyous. What you what your goal is, who you are, when you were the happiest in your life. So you come at it with enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, but then I'm also thinking in an interview, knowing how to talk about you know your your experience, keeping it brief, um, knowing. You know, motivation. What is your motivation? Who you're talking? You know, is it you know? Oh, you know, it's creative, or is it you're at a you know interview? You know, then it's more brief. Um, but then I was thinking, you know, the rep telling our story, and then of course students feel they like when I they get to know me and I tell my story to them. They they like it. They feel more connected. I show them something I did, some performance with dance or acting, and they. And then also, in there, it's wonderful when they write autobiographies, which it's required as part of the class, but it's. They open up to me, and that does show trust. And they're opening up to me and telling me all about their life. Um, it's incredible, you know, things they've been through, and I, I feel so. My heart goes out. You know, you learn things about what they've been through, and things. You know, you know, as a teacher, we talk, we look at the writing, we look at different things. You know, the different word choice and different, you know, thesis, anything. But then it's incredible the level I think trust from a student to open up. So they yeah, must I was feel gonna, comfortable. That's exactly what I was thinking about, Sabella. That you established a level of trust, right? And that's, that's a crucial element in the communication. When you're, when you're connect, when you're, and I think Erica mentioned this earlier, we're listening for people's voice, right? We're listening to what their concerns are. We're listening to their pain, but we're synthesizing it and creating story and narrative to express that to not just to them, but to other people like them. Um, so thank you very much, Sibel. I can no, imagine your class you. would be good for that. Uh, Byron, um, John Michael, do you have anything you want to say? Yeah, I have something that I will give you a chance. I like to get summarized. John Michael will take a chance to talk whenever. I, I do a podcast with him. And I have to try to get him to give me back. Well, well, okay, if you're going to summarize, then I, then I do have, then I do have one. About it. So I think that... To ask the question of how you tell stories is too broad. I mean, you tell lots of stories in, about lots of different things. But one that really stood out to me occurred when we had a group of paramilitaries over to, to talk at Stanford. And, and it was good that we had them there because they would have gone home. If they'd been back in Northern Ireland, they'd have gone home that night and we'd never seen them again. But they can't get home from here. So they had to come back the next day. It was that kind of tense thing. I don't want anything to do with you about this stuff. And, and, and one of the things you have to know is that every negotiated agreement or arrangement or settlement or anything that's going on here imposes losses and injustices on the, on the parties from their perspective. There is no such thing from their perspective as a just peace. There's a tolerably unjust peace, but there isn't a just peace because that's what we disagree about. And so we're talking, I mean, so you just have to think, that's the framework is I'm going to accept 
losses and injustices from the parties if I'm, if I'm going to engage in this stuff. And so we had uh, a time of, why don't the loyalists tell the Republicans what they think they lost in this agreement? And we had the, the Republicans tell the loyalists how they, what they thought they lost in this thing about it. And at the end of that, a, a loyalist stood up and said, I want to condemn, I want to commend the Republicans. They got it just right. And so actually hearing that person articulate what, what this cost me to live in peace with you was critical for the conversation. After that, the conversation went great. It went wonderful. But it took my understanding that you know concretely and can recognize and acknowledge to me what I'm paying for the price of living in peace with you. And I, and I think that that's a particularly powerful, that goes off of some uh, way of telling that. But there are lots of different stories, that some more positive, some negative. But sometimes just actually telling people what they think. I understand what you have lost in this is, is really critically important. And I understand the pain that you bring to it. It's not that you're wrong about that. You're right about the pain that you feel. And in that sense, it's a conflict about what people are right about, not what they're wrong about. Love it. Okay. <laughs> More of that. <laughs> so there's a, a couple things I want you guys to think about about what was just said there. You know, whether all of us ever find ourselves in a position where we are trying to negotiate in such a tense situation, one thing that I think is probably true at some point or another in our collective lives is we're at some point going to be working with a lawyer. Probability is very high. And, you know, what you find out when you work with lawyers is that negotiating settlements looks an awful lot like that. So you know that you pretty much achieved a good result if essentially all parties feel like they're a little bit hurt. That's the actual outcome if almost all legal proceedings. So, um, so it, it, it does directly correlate to many of our existences. If you've ever been divorced, my goodness, a divorce is you know, similar and different but it has that same sort of flavor. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. Now, separately from that, I just wanted to talk for a second about my approach to a lot of the storytelling that I engage in. A lot of what I do is um, bring to the foreground anecdotal moments from my own existence and try and express a little bit of you know, what I was feeling in that moment. So if I'm pitching something, most of the time if I'm pitching it, it's because something about what I'm pitching uh, is a consequence of something else that really bugged me. That's like 80 to 90% of all the situations I ever pitch about anything in. It's something that bugged me. So I spend a lot of time in storytelling really speaking to you about personal experiences. I'm doing that right now. I mean, I'm, that's very normal for me. Uh, and that applies to whether I'm facing into businesses, facing into investors, talking to my friends. Um, I won't do it in certain situations, though. There's just a couple places where you'll never see this behavior from me. Uh, one of the situations is if somebody else is sharing a story with me. So I uh, very, believe, very much believe in the respect that we owe each other for the stories that we hear from each other as well. I don't think it's very useful to try and find common cause. I tend to, you know, look at it from the standpoint of if you're going to be willing to share something personal about yourself, that's it. That moment is really about what you want to share. Um, and that's just, you know, these are the two sides of 
my whole world of inviting everybody into journeys that I'm a part of. So that's my thoughts. Thank you very much, um, John Michael. And thank you very much to my panel today. This was a very, let's give it up. Yeah, very much so. Um, so I, thank you all for coming. We really appreciate having you here at Node. This is uh, Node Worldwide at 1011 Kearney Street in San Francisco. There's a lot of intersectional activity here. Um, it's a really great, fun place here at Kearney and Columbus. Um, so if you want to come and join us, um, you can become a member uh, or just come to some of the events and uh, say hi. So, And we will be open for a little longer. We have more food. Um, we'll stay open as long as we are finishing off the, the refreshments. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you.